All right, you may be seated. And kids, if you would like to come on up here, you're more than welcome to. I have a few kids that are, have my last name. They better be the first ones up here. Let's go. <laughs> there they come. Come on. So we are, one of the things we're going to do just until, and kids, you can come right up here, and I'm going to even sit down so all oh, these adults can't see me. Come on over here, guys. One of the things until we can get uh, kids ministry going full time with all the regulations and rules, we're going to do this for, for a time being. So have you guys ever had a dream before? Yeah, you can look at me. You don't need to look at them. They're, they're, <laughs> I have to look at them all the time. They're kind of scary, huh? Yeah. Have you ever had a dream, Nathaniel? Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, we have all sorts of crazy dreams. You know, Lincoln, he has great dreams, and he remembers them all. Can you guys always remember your dreams? No? You ever wake up and you go, oh, that was such a cool dream, and then you forget it like a few seconds later, right? You don't even know what they were? Can you remember if they're happy or sad? Sometimes no, sometimes yes. So today we're looking at the story of the wise men or the magi coming to visit Jesus. And in this, we're going to have a bunch of dreams. See, God speaks to us in dreams sometimes. And in these stories, he sends an angel in a dream. Now the word angel is the same word as the word messenger. So these are messengers sitting to God's people in a dream. But you know what's interesting? Is sometimes we get dreams and other times, we get people telling us what God wants us to do. But the thing that's amazing for us is that we have this right here. What is this? A it's a Bible. Good job. It's a Bible, right? And one of the things you'll see today is that every time they had a dream or they had an angel come, every single time it confirmed what was said right it's really tempting to want to have some sort of new revelation and have something new. God, tell us something new. But what if it's not right? You know, in Galatians 1.8, it says that even if a preacher like me or an angel, right, like the ones they saw, came and told you to do something that was opposite of the Bible, we should ignore it. So praise the Lord that we have God's word as our measuring stick to know whether our dreams and our advice and our recommendations that people give us, if you have a friend that says, do this, if it doesn't match up with what God's word says, then we know we shouldn't do it, right? So that's the cool thing about this story today. So I want you to listen carefully. There's going to be at least three dreams in there, okay? So you guys have coloring books and you have some stuff you can be working on through there, but pay close attention to the different dreams we have, okay? All right, you guys can go back to your seats now, okay? Thanks for humoring me and letting me teach you guys. All right, so those guys were really attentive. And uh, so no pressure on you bigger kids in the room. Older kids, not bigger, we'll say older. So today we're going to spend some time in Matthew chapter 2. So if you'd please turn there. Um, we're going to do things a little differently where normally we would have one of our elders or one of our ministry leaders come up and read the passage, but it's the entire chapter two. Travis and Scott and I were discussing, um, lamenting, complaining, sort of, about having to do the whole chapter. There was just too much in there. Um, but it works out on our schedule, and, and it was Scott's idea, so we'll just blame him. So we're going to do all of chapter 2, and how we're going to do this is we're going to take it in kind of three cycles. 
Um, we're going to look at the three main characters in chapter 2. And so we're going to read some of the same portions again. And what I'm going to have you do is as we're reading it, we're going to look at it from a person's perspective and what they're thinking and what they're doing as we go through this whole chapter. So we'll hit all the verses, but we are going to kind of jump around just a little bit. So here's the big takeaway, the big idea. Jesus is the one true king. You can reject him or you can revere him. So as we begin looking at this section, there's really two sections to this. You have the section with the magi or the wise men, and it's all about their faith. And then you have the section which is all about Herod and his unfaith or unbelief or lack of faith. See, there's, there's a war going on in this chapter, and it's the same war that we see all the time. It's a war between the kingdoms of this earth. It's the kingdoms of all of humanity that wants to rule versus the true king who already is ruling. And so we're going to see this. Herod's going to dig his heels in and try to hold on to a kingdom which we'll see gets taken away from him right here in this passage. And then we see the baby Jesus come in, the child who comes in and ushers in the kingdom which will go on for eternity. So let's look at the first, the, the characters. They're all introduced in verse 1, and this is what it says. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So this is a summary. This is telling us who's here. So we see it in this order. We see Jesus. He's the first one brought out in this chapter. Literally, God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus' name means God save. So we see the God with us who saves. That's who he is. The second person that's mentioned is Herod, and he is called the king. Herod is what man has become through sinfulness, self-absorbed, self-focused, rebellion. Many times we are a lot closer to Herod than we'd like to let on. And then lastly, the wise men or the magi. These reveal what man, even though they are sinners, through grace can become. And this is that faith, that trusting in God's word, trusting in God. So we see the three people we're going to look at. We also see the, the place of the action. It's in the city of Bethlehem, or Bethlehem, if you, are, if you are Jewish. It literally means the house of bread, which sounds like a great place to go for lunch. The house of bread. They were known for the kind of bread they made. They were known for succulent, very tasty bread. And they produced most of the bread that would be sold in the city of Jerusalem, which was only four miles away, literally just over a hill. Could have walked there in a few hours. So this is where it happens, and this is where our action is going to take place. So the first group we're going to look at, we're going to go kind of in reverse order. We're going to start with the Magi, or the wise men. These are outsiders from outside of Israel who come a very long way to see who this king is. So read with me. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. And now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you 
shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the first group we see are the Magi, the wise men. These people, these men, represent humanity under the power of grace. Humanity under the power of grace. This is meant to be an encouragement. This is meant to say, this is a good example. This is who we should be like. So let's dig into who these people are, because this is not who you would expect and, and hopefully, if you've been paying attention in the last few weeks, we see that Jesus' genealogy, Jesus' story, is full of things that you wouldn't expect. We had four, four women in his genealogy. We had several Gentiles. We had all sorts of scandal and things involved with him being born. Not what you'd expect from God's Messiah. Same thing here. These wise men, the Greek word is magios, which is where we get the term magi from. They were from Persia, or more likely Babylon. Uh, These were priests and teachers. They taught all sorts of things, from dream interpretations, ironic that they are warmed in a dream by God, Uh, dream interpretations, sacred writings, wisdom, magic. But what they are most known for was a wedding of two things that we have today separated. So I want to define a couple of words here. The words are astronomy and astrology. Astronomy, astra, heavens, or space, stars, and nomos, law, or teaching. So what this is, is this is the study of how the planets move. So these, what these guys would do like you would see with NASA. You know, they recently landed a, a rover on Mars. They had to figure out where the planets would be because space is a big place, and if you shoot it the wrong way, it's not going to accidentally land there. So astronomy is the study of where everything is. Astrology... Astra, space, or planets, logos, word, is the study of what those planets' movement means. And in ancient times, the Magi wed these two together. Today, we don't wed those two together. NASA is not telling us where the planets are going to be and then also telling us our sign, okay? It doesn't work that way. But back in the olden days, in ancient times, they were one and the same. They would say, Mars is going to be over here, and that means that this is going to happen. So these magi, they show up. They show up in Israel. They would not have been considered wise by the Israelites. As a matter of fact, they would have been considered idolaters. And the worst kind of idolaters in that they taught other people how to be idolaters. They taught other people how to not worship God. And so the the Jews would have seen these as some of the most despisable pagans on the planet. But what's interesting, again, is this is, you know, Matthew chooses which parts of the story he's going to include. This totally lines up with what we've already seen. When Matthew says, Jesus has got Gentiles in his, in his heritage, not only that, but he's got pagans coming to worship him. The Magi are literally walking illustrations of God's grace. Remember in Hosea, 
where we see, I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall, you shall say, you are my God. See, this is what God is all about. He's about taking people that don't belong to him and making them his. He says, mine. I call dibs. They're mine. So the Magi are not a surprise if we understand how the Bible's put together. Verse 2, when they had said, they came in saying, right? Um, and then later on, we see saying. These, these words imply continuous action. So the Magi, I'd always predict, kind of envisioned the Magi went straight to Herod's house, right? The Herod's palace. But that's not what this implies. This implies that they just started asking anybody. Hey, have you heard about the king of the Jews? Hey, have you heard about the king of the Jews? They're checking out at Safeway. Hey, have you heard about the king of the Jews? They're going around and they're, they're asking. So you can see why Jerusalem might get a little upset. It's like, they're talking about some other king. Herod doesn't like that, right? So we'll get into Herod a little bit. So the star rose, the magi, they, they're familiar with this prophecy. Now what prophecy are they talking about? Well, in Numbers 24, 17, there's a prophecy by Balaam that says a star will come out of Jacob. And so they would have understood this. How did the Magi living in Babylon or Persia know about the Bible? Well, they knew about it because of Daniel. Remember Daniel, right? He goes and he's in the courts in Babylon and he brought his, his, his understanding of the Bible. He taught the Bible there. And so these Magi are the descendants based on teaching of Daniel. What an incredible blessing. Daniel wouldn't have even realize that this was going to be where God was going to use them. So this, this star when it rose. Now, there's been a lot of work done on this being a natural phenomenon, and God could have very well used a comet or a supernova or a conjunction of planets, but there's all sorts of problems with it, trying to figure it all out. So let's just look at it like the pillar of fire, when we saw the, in the Israelites, when they were moving through the wilderness, right? They had a pillar of fire. And, and we don't see people going, well, by pillar of fire, they meant, you know, it was this natural phenomenon. We know it's supernatural. So I think the same thing is probably true here. Because this star moves, and it goes in a direction that it shouldn't be going. And then it stops. And then it moves again, and then it stops again. So this is a supernatural thing. And we shouldn't be surprised, right? God uses the unusual history in chapter 1 to bring Jesus about, so why wouldn't he use the unusual in nature to bring him about? And so this is Matthew saying, listen, this God, this, this Jesus, he's the ruler of everything, history and nature. So they came 800 miles to worship him. Now, traveling about 20 or so miles a day would have been pretty average, so this would have taken them over 40 days, over 40 days. That would be like arriving here right now, and you left the first week of January. That's a long trip, right? You, you, how many times are you going to hear, are we there yet? <laughs> how many bathroom breaks? Assuming they've had kids with them, maybe not. So they show up, and they worship him. It says they worship him. Verse 9, it says they went before them. Again, that's the, the tie to that picture of the, the fire or the pillar going before the Israelites. Verse 10, when they saw the star move again. So they're in, they're in Jerusalem, and they go, okay, we have to go to Bethlehem. They go, we got to go to Bethlehem, but the star, oh, look, the star's moving. And when they saw the star moving, that was confirming to them that they were on the right path. And I love this word. It says they, they rejoiced, right? The word in Greek is rejoicing with joy. 
right? It's like bacon with bacon bits on top. It's extra, right? It's joy with more joy is what they were feeling. What did that look like? Were they dancing? Were they celebrating? Was it a party the whole way? I mean, only got four miles to walk. Are they singing and celebrating the whole way there? But that joy is there. Ironically, these despised astrologers are the ones to go see Jesus. They go to the people with the written word, and they hear the written word, and they act on it, while the people who have the word, the Israelites, do nothing. Not a single one goes. It's no different than what Paul had happened, no different than what we see in our churches, that sometimes the people with the most word in their life are the ones that are least affected by it. It's a common, common thing. I've seen it in my life where I get so used to God's word that it's just, oh, it's God's word. It doesn't change me, which is why I, am, I, I love when I get to meet new believers, and I've got to meet quite a few in the last few years, and their hunger and their fire for God's word. I know one, it, he, he's so in love with God's word that he's in multiple Bible studies, and I got to say, man, you got to sleep sometime. Take a break. Take a step back. But I love that. He's so hungry. He's gone without the bread of life for years, and now he can't get enough. And that's what we, we need as a church. That's what I need as a follower of Christ. I want that hunger like I had at first. I want that. And praise be to God, the Holy Spirit's willing to give that to us if we but ask. So these, these magi, they, they're hungry for it. They keep going. They arrive at the house, verse 11, where Jesus was living. So we don't know how long the time was. It was under two years, but we know that, that Joseph and Mary have decided to settle in Bethlehem. And then they show up in verse 11, and they worship him. Again, pagans showing up, not even really understanding what they're doing, but they can't help but worship this king. The religious figures in Jerusalem couldn't be bothered to walk the four miles, and the pagans walk 800 miles. They bring three gifts. It doesn't mean there were three um, three of the wise men. It just means they brought three gifts. These gifts are all gifts of the king. Come back on December 25th and we'll talk about those gifts. See you guys then. I'm sure you've heard passages about that, but we're going to keep going. So the magi were the ones that brought the gifts. They were the outsiders. They came in. They were hungry. They wouldn't stop until they found the king. And then they go home a different way. Just like when we meet Christ, we go home a different way. We don't live the same life. But the Magi are only one of the three characters here. The second one is Herod. Herod the Great. He named himself. Let that one sit for a second, right? You're going to name yourself. You're going to call yourself the Great. I mean, it works. Alexander did it too. So this guy is a piece of work. Let's look at what his passage is, the passage here about him. So we're going to start back in verse 1. So look at what Herod's thinking and doing and kind of imagine. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Probably a better word for that is very, very, very upset. Terrified is actually the Greek word, so we'll talk about that in a minute. And all of Jerusalem with him, assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, 
You are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I may too worship him. Skip ahead to verse 16. The wise men have gone home a different way. Then Herod, when he saw he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoke by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because there are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream in Egypt. So the, the, the second thing we see is we see King Herod is humanity under the power of sin. This is meant to be a warning. Just like the Magi or the encouragement, this is how we should respond to the king. Herod is, this is how we should not respond to the king. And we're going to see Herod is, is mirrored by many different people throughout the story told in Matthew's gospel. We're going to see it as we go through. So who is Herod the Great? Well, he's Herod the First. And he ruled from 37 to 4 B.C. He was an Edomian, which means he's an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. He was appointed as king, not by the Jews, but by the Romans to be in charge. He was a firm ruler. He was also a ruthless ruler. He murdered his wife and two of his sons and several of his siblings because he was worried they were going to take his kingdom from him. Caesar Augustus said, it's better to be a pig in the house of Herod than his son. No wonder when it says that Herod was troubled, that all of Jerusalem was troubled as well. Because ultimately, if Herod's not feeling it, you're definitely feeling it. So, but he's at root a perfect politician. He's, he's, he's perfect. He is Arab by, by race, so he would have met with some of the people outside of Israel. He's Jewish by religion. So the Jews should have liked him. He's Greek by his culture and training. So any of the Greek speakers should have liked him. And then he's Roman by his politics. Sounds like a perfect politician, doesn't he? He's got all the groups lined up. And we're going to see that that doesn't help him at all. Born in Bethlehem. We see that it says, again, born in Bethlehem. This is the city of the king. This is David's city. And the narrative makes it very clear that there is a new king on the block. And two kings don't get along. It's just the way it works. The second king is always on the run from the first king. We saw this with David and Saul. So Jesus is immediately thrust into conflict just by being born. Now this is a sad story because if you think about it, there's not a more perfect person to become a believer than Herod. I mean, he's who Jesus came for. He may think he's an insider. He may think that he's got all of the boxes checked. But we know the Romans hated him. The Jews hated him. And this Arabic, the Edomites, they didn't want anything to do with him. I mean, and honestly, after you kill your wife and your two kids, I don't think his kids want to do anything with him. So he is somebody, he is the perfect picture of who Christ came for. He has nothing to stand on. And instead... He goes to try to kill the one who came to save him. Foolishness to those who are perishing. I think that summarizes Herod pretty well. 
Verse 2, it says, he was born king of the Jews. Not he will become, but literally, he is now the king. And so that kind of gives us a picture into why Herod took this badly. I mean, we think of a child, a two-year-old child, and it's like, we're not giving them much authority, much rule, but that's not how Herod saw it. Herod saw that they said, he is the king, not he will become the king, he is the king. And so Herod is troubled. This word means terrified. Can you imagine how ironic it is that this great man who calls himself the great is terrified by a less than two-year-old? That it, 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 it shakes him down to the core? That he is in turmoil? That this true king may show up? He knows he's not the true king. Now, the magi, when it says that they were troubled, we need to understand the magi did not arrive by themselves. And it was not three It was a group. These guys traveled with an entourage because they're carrying gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which means they need protection. Because if you're walking through the middle of nowhere and you've got gold clinking around, you're a ripe target. So this is probably a big group of people showing up in Jerusalem. And they said to everyone, where's the king? We want to worship the king. We want to worship the king. Jerusalem had reason to be troubled, one author writes, because when Herod's troubled, Those troubles inevitably become the people's troubles. And they weren't troubled because they wanted Herod around. They just didn't want Herod to mess with them anymore. So Herod teaches us the raw reaction of when we react to the king in our flesh. When we react to the king like every other human. He's not king. I'm king. I am in charge. He's not in charge. Herod's response to the center of the universe other than himself is a murderous tantrum on a scale that is absolutely appalling, and it's meant to be. See, Herod's an extreme case. He's not an isolated one, because deep down, we have the same fight that Herod had. We want to be in charge. We want to be the king. And ultimately, we will fail at that, just like Herod did. The Gentile magi represent the aliens. This is us in the external sense. Like Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, Strangers of the promise. So we're all aliens to this family that Christ is ushering in, that we are adopted into, just like the Magi. But also, we are rebels. Not only are we not a part of his family, but there are times when we actively fight against it, just like Herod. Ephesians 2.3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out our desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, we need to understand that we, we need to not see ourselves in the gospel stories as Jesus. We need to see ourselves as the problems that Jesus has to encounter. And in every single one of them, he graces and he mercies each of them and brings them along. That's us. That's us. There is one hero to the story, and that hero is Christ. The gospel, realistically, when we see ourselves, we are the ones that need the sacrifice. Not the ones that say, oh, I'm good, you guys go to Jesus. See, Herod, Herod is original sin, right? He is the, I want to be in charge. What did Adam and Eve, what was, what was the temptation? You can be like God. Herod believed it. Herod said, I am God. I am the one in charge. And this is the constant battle we have until we get to go be with the Lord in glory, is that fighting against the desire to be in charge. Because there are two kings at war in everyone, Christ or me, Christ or my way. 
Now, verse 4, it says he assembled all of the, the priests and the scribes. This means the Sadducees and the Pharisees all working together. Verse 5, it says, I want to know, he wants to know where the Christ was born. Well, where does Christ come into this? The Magi were looking for the king. They understood that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to be king. And then look here at verse 6. Bethlehem, the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, don't miss this here. Herod is given a chance. This awful, awful person who is going to try to kill Jesus. God knows this. God knows he murdered his wife. God knows he murdered his sons. God knows all about how bad Herod is. But yet, through these Pharisees and these Sadducees, he has delivered a small version of the gospel. Do you see it? He's, given, he's, he's been told, look, Jesus is in the house of bread. Go to him. Isn't God's love amazing? That the most awful, the most terrible Get a chance to hear the gospel? What a great God we serve. Now Herod hears it. He doesn't pursue it. The Magi hear it, and they pursue it until they find it. Herod heard the most embryonic, the smallest version of the gospel. The king, and here's where he is. Go to him. And yet, the only reason he would go is to murder the king. It's a sad, sad story, but it's an incredible story about our God, and how even the worst he came for. Now, you ever wonder why the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, don't go and visit Jesus as the child? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, one that I think actually probably makes the most sense is he didn't match up with what they wanted. Yeah, they wanted a king, but they wanted the king to come meet them where they were at. They didn't want to have to go meet the king where he was at. And see, the baby king doesn't do them any good. Because they want a king to overthrow Rome. That baby, you know, is not going to do much when it comes to fighting Rome. As a matter of fact, he's lived outside of town. But he needs to come to us because we are the best. And we're going to see this constantly through the book of Matthew, this interaction between the Pharisees and Sadducees and Jesus. Ultimately, we need to take our views of the Christ, of the Messiah, from the Bible, not from what we want. Verse 7, Herod, of course, is lying here. I may come and worship him. He's lying. Herod, Herod worships Herod. Then in verse 16, Herod became furious. Herod is, is doing the devil's bidding, and when his plans are, are, are thwarted, he reacts out of anger and fury. Psalm 2.4 tells us that the one enthroned in heaven laughs and scoffs at the Herods of the world. Verse 16, all male children in Bethlehem, two years old and under. Now, Bethlehem, we know it was not a very big city. Um, at the time of the return from the exile, it was about 123 men. So we're talking about 10 to 30 boys this age. Now, Jesus was probably not two. He was more like one. So Herod's just kind of hedging his bets and making sure they get all of them. Herod's personality matched this when not only did he kill his wife and his sons and his siblings, but he said as he was approaching death, which was going to happen a few months after this, this episode, he said, when I die, I want you to round up 2,000 Jewish men and kill them. So that way, there's enough mourning and weeping to match how great I am. Now, 
Thankfully, the Roman soldiers were like, no, nah, that's stupid. He's, dead. He's gone. He can't do anything to us. So they didn't do it, but this is in keeping with who Herod is. Verse 17, spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Like the exile, the attempt on Jesus' life is trying to wipe out God's chosen, but yet God saves. Then in verse 19, but when Herod died, where did Herod's kingdom go? Could he take it with him? Nope. No matter how great the king, every king will stand before the king. Herod is thought to have lived maybe a few months after this. And when he died, he left his kingdom to his sons and they broke it up and split it up and fought over it. What a waste. What an opportunity wasted. So third, we, we are now going to look at the child king because this is the one that ties the whole story together. We've seen the responses. We've seen reverence and rebellion. We've seen worship. We've seen war. So who is this king? Who is this child that is causing all of this hubbub? Well, we've got to go back to verse 6 because this is telling us who he is. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Skip ahead to verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now skip ahead to verse 20. And saying, this was again after, after, um, after Herod had died, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's death, life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that it was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. What's interesting in this entire chapter is that at the very beginning, it's clear there are two kings. Herod is called the king. Jesus is called the king. But once the wise men go and bow down to Jesus, Herod is never referred to as a king ever again. And neither is his son. We have to understand that, that Jesus is the one true king. Jesus is the rightful heir. Verse 6 is quoted, quoting Micah 5 too, which was our call to worship which says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth shall be of old from ancient of days. Matthew changes Micah a little bit, and instead of saying clans, he says rulers. And then at the end, instead of saying ancient of days, meaning you've been here for forever, he says a shepherd. We already touched on that been here forever last week when we talked about Jesus' father. But now we're talking about what, what does this mean for us? See, this is, a, this is 2 Samuel 5, 2 is the quote at the end of this Micah passage. And there's a reason for it. And the reason is, is that Matthew's letting us know what kind of king this Jesus is. He says he's a ruler and he's a shepherd, both found in Christ. Ruler, does, ruling, ruler in Greek is the word hegemoi, which is where we get the word hegemony. It means a strong leader who people will follow. The second term used is shepherd, 
which means not only is he out front leading, but he's checking on his sheep. He's caring for his sheep. This shepherd is going to be brought up over and over again because this is who Christ is. Not only does he lead, but he cares. These two kings couldn't have been more different, could they? Herod's prodding his people forward. Oh, you need to grieve more. Kill people when I die. If you don't do what I say, I'll kill you. Oh, if I feel you're a threat, I'll kill you. Whereas Jesus is saying, I'm going to go first. Follow me. And as I'm leading, I'm going to care for you as we go. Herod is the king of Jerusalem, but Jesus is the king from Bethlehem. So they flee to Egypt, verse 13. This is about 90 miles south of Bethlehem. This was to fulfill the prophet Hosea, verse 15. From chapter, Hosea chapter 2, verse 15. God's son coming out of Egypt. See, Jesus' life here mirrors Israel's life. We see an escape to Egypt, just like many of the patriarchs did. And then we see an exodus from Egypt, just like Moses. See, what Matthew's saying is saying, you know how Israel failed and you know how Israel constantly messed up? I'm reading Judges in my quiet time right now and it's just mess up after mess up and it only gets worse. Israel messed up, but Jesus is the new Israel. He is the new and he will not mess up. The true Israel will not fail. Jesus is the new Israel in person wrapped up in this child, wrapped up in the life of this child. See, ultimately, we, we see with the Magi, it's about God's mercy. And with Herod, it's about God's judgment. And those two things were taught over and over again in the Old Testament. I mean, it's clear. If you read the Old Testament, you see some of God's mercy, you see some of God's judgment. And it goes back and forth. But the great new thing that is brought about here is that we have a representative. We have one who stands in our place, who stands up and says, I am for these people. I am the new Israel. I am the pure spotless lamb. He is the one who will fulfill all righteousness. Magi and Herod represent our need. Christ represents the provision given by God. And this is a major truth we must understand about ourselves is that we have not have to go it alone. Our salvation is through one and he represents us before God. Look at what Isaiah 53, 6 says. You all are familiar with this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid the iniquity of us, sorry, on him the iniquity of us all. Now, let's take this and let's see who we're talking about in this passage. And you'll see it up here. All we like sheep have gone astray. Who were they in this passage? It's the Magi. We have turned everyone to his own way. Herod. And the Lord has laid on him the child king, the iniquity of us all. This is the gospel, folks. This is it. This is, we will go our own way and try all sorts of things like pagans. And then we can turn to Christ. We will worship self and do it our own way and turn to Christ because Christ's the one. Christ is the one that stands between us and God. As we finish up here, verse 22, Archelaus Herod had rewritten his will seven times, and this was the seventh one that was around when he died. And so Archelaus got Judea, but he only held on to it for a few years because he was not much, he was a chip off the old block, um, and Caesar would not stand for him being as bad as his dad, and so he was exiled. 
Verse 22, warned in a dream, Joseph is, is mulling about, do we go back to Bethlehem? And God says, no, go north. And so they go 70 miles north of Jerusalem to a little town called Nazareth. This is where Joseph had originally been from. There are about 400 or so people, 480 is the, is the number they came up with that lived here. Up in the hills, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. We see, spoken by the prophets. Matthew is not quoting a specific verse. He's quoting all of the Old Testament. He says, the prophets all pointed to this one. Verse 23, the Nazarene. And where does, what does that word mean? Well, the Hebrew word for branch is the word Nazar. And so, Nazarene means one of the branch, or one who is the branch. This is from Isaiah 11.1. 1. The town of Nazareth was named because after the exile, some of David's descendants said, we're going to go make ourselves a town, and we're going to be far enough away that no one can get us. We're going to go up in the hills, and we're going to name it after this line in Isaiah 11.1, 1, and we're going to call it Nazareth. So what Matthew is saying is Jesus is from the city of David, Bethlehem, and he's from the people of David, the Nazareth. And so ultimately, Jesus is the branch. Jesus is the one. He fits the, the mold that is laid out for the Messiah. And isn't it interesting that the final word in this chapter is not the Magi and their conversion, or Herod and his non-conversion, but instead it is God's naming of Jesus. He is the branch. He is the one. We have been represented and this new kingdom is here. So starting next week, we get the picture of the kingdom as we move to Christ inaugurating the kingdom with his death and resurrection. The one true king is here. So what does this mean for us? Well, the Magi encourage us, no matter how far away you are from Christ, you can come and meet him here today. And it starts with God's word. Herod is a warning. You can't resist grace forever. If you're here and you're resisting it and you're digging in and I am, I am the God and he's not God, you can't resist forever. No matter whether you're the highest and on the inside or whether you're an outsider, you can't resist forever. And ultimately, Jesus is the branch. He's the branch between fallen man and God. He's the one that bridges that gap. Puritan Thomas Watson said, such as will not have Christ be their king to rule over them will never have their, his blood to save them. See, if we are like the Magi, we see God's revelation in his nature, the star. We see it in his word, which takes us to seek out the Christ, where we lay our gifts down and we go a different direction. That's repentance. Or we are like Herod and we go, I am God, I am in charge, and look at Herod's sin is not just Herod's, it spreads to innocence around him. And that's what we see. We see that our sin does not stay with me individually, it spreads to those around us. So, Jesus' kingdom is here. You can submit to it, you can submit to the king, or you can resist it. And again, Herod didn't know that he had a few months left. Herod didn't know that his resistance was going to be his end of his story. So what are we going to do? If you're not submitting fully, you are resisting. If you're not for him, you are against him. 
So choose this day who you're going to serve. Where in your life are you rebelling and resisting what God is doing? Because if there's even a drop of that, confess it and the branch will bring you back to the Lord. The branch will bridge the gap between you and your Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so love your word and that, Lord, we can go to it and it has all that we need. But, Lord, even more amazing than that is that your spirit resides in us and you help us to understand that. So, Lord, whatever part of this we need to hear and we need to be brought back up that you would bring it up in us. Lord, where we're resisting and not submitting, bring it to our hearts and minds. If we've never submitted, Lord, make us submit right now. Lord, we need more of you. We want to be connected to you. So, Lord, I pray that you would do a mighty work here in our church. Lord, we praise you and we love you. In your name, amen.